Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? You're not sure yet? Okay, it's early. Oftentimes in life, it's uh, obvious, it's uh, easy to miss the obvious because we're looking at or focused on the wrong thing. And I recently heard a true story, actually read a true story of a fellow who was working in a particular factory. And uh, as he was going through the gate of the factory, he had a wheelbarrow, it was filled with sawdust. And as he came to the exit to leave, the guard stopped him and said, where are you going? He said, well, I got permission to take this extra sawdust home. He looked at, worked at a lumber mill. He said, I got the permission to take the sawdust home because I'm going to use it and spread it all over the floor of my shop. And the guard said, well, wait a minute. Let, let, me, let me just check with, uh, with your boss on that. So he called into the office, asked if it was okay. And he said, yeah, no, no problem. He has permission to do that. So he rummaged through the sawdust, the guard, to make sure that there wasn't anything in there that wasn't supposed to be in there. And the guy took the stuff home and he used the sawdust. And he continued to do this for several days. Actually, it ended up turning into a couple of weeks. And finally, one of the guys working with him said, man, what, what, what are you doing with all that sawdust? Are you stealing it or what? He goes, oh, no, I'm not stealing the sawdust. I've been stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, you know, it's going to be easy in this new series that we're going to do to sometimes get lost and uh, miss the obvious while we're looking at other things. So I wanted to kind of just bring that to your attention before we got start, started. A few months ago, uh, we were about four weeks into our finance series, and as so often is the case, someone asked me when that one was going to be over, <laughs> and, uh, and, and wanted to know what the new one was going to be. And I said, well, you know, I really honestly haven't thought much about it because we just kind of started this one, and I'm not real sure what the next series is going to be, and I never know what the next series is going to be until I'm almost finished with the last one, and then I start panicking and uh, trying to figure out what the next one's going to be. So anyway, she said, well, I got a challenge for you. She goes, I was just reading and, and going through the, the book of Ruth, and, you know, I thought this would be an interesting study and, you know, that it, it may be appropriate, and I don't know. Why don't you look into it and see what you think? So the challenge had already been issued. So now I'm forced to deal with this challenge while we're in the middle of a series on finances, and so I was kind of like, well, I'll, I'll think about it, put it on the back burner, but the seed had been planted, and so I started to read through the book of Ruth. I started to study, started to get some information, and th there really wasn't a lot of extra biblical stuff, so it was like, basically, here's what we have to deal with. But the problem was, and knowing me the way that she did, the challenge had been issued. I didn't have a choice. She knew it. We're going to do a study of the book of Ruth. Now, what's interesting about that is, is that, um, you know, 13 years ago, I started to teach this particular Bible study group that you're a part of now. And uh, one of the first studies that I ever did was going through the book of Nehemiah. And there was a lot of interest. There was a lot of enthusiasm. There was, there was, um, there was a, a lot of good response. And 13 years ago, it seems like you could turn the radio on and you could hear a number of Bible teachers going through a book study. Over the past 13 years, I've noticed somewhat of a change. And, uh, and I just want to kind of bring that to your attention because I thought, you know, doing a book study is kind of a risky thing in our culture today. And I'll tell you why. Because the majority of people today want to try to choose studies that are more topic-oriented. And the reason they want to do that is so that they would generate some interest so that people would be interested in hearing what they have to say. Now, I've done my share of that, and I've tried to do book studies and mix in topical studies. You know, and I think, I think back over the last several years, and we've done topical studies on knowing God and biblical morality and uh, our, the grace series that we did and marriage and family we did and finance series we did. And so I believe it's a valid way to teach biblical truth. 
But what's concerned me, and the, and the reason that I, I said it was risky to do a book study, is that I think we've lost to some degree in our culture an understanding that any time that we pick up this book and we study it, it's going to be practical, it's going to be relevant, and it's going to be life-changing. Now, I want you to test yourself, and, and this is funny because this just happened to me before I came in here, but there was two people that were coming in for the first time. And uh, the guy asked, well, what's your new series going to be? Now, this is kind of the way it usually works. Now, when I say we're going to do a marriage, we're going to do a series on marriage and family, here's usually the response, oh, man, that's great. You know, because we really can use that, or it's usually this. Man, I know a lot of people that are having problems in their marriage right now. This is, this is going to be great. This is, what kind of topics, what, kind of, what are we going to be doing? This is going to be great. And so, you know, you'll go through a series like that. Man, people will line up because they want to get tapes to give people information that's going to be life-changing. This stuff, oh, they, so-and-so, they need to hear this. You say, oh, this is great. So then you do a studies on finances. Oh, you're in finance. Oh, man, you know what? I know a lot of other people that are having problems with their finances, too. And these are the same people that are having problems with their marriage, and maybe it's all tied together, and I can't wait to, you know, hear what you have to say about that, and, and oh, man, we'll get this tapes, and we'll go ahead, and we'll send them to people all over the place. Now, test yourself with this one. Hey, what's your next series going to be? I'm going to do a study on the book of Ruth. What? The book of Ruth. And then they start going over to the information center and find out, who, who else is teaching around here, and what are they doing? <laughs> the book of Ruth. What the heck's the book of Ruth? You know, and that's kind of the response. What's funny is the two guys, that they came here and the guy introduced me to him and said, hey, what's your new series going to be? I said, hey, man, we're going to do a study on the book of Ruth. Then I went to get some water and they were walking, man. They were just like, they were out of here. And it was like, you know, how, how, what do you, I mean, how do you, you, you know, what do you say? And, and what's so ironic about all that is it's like, you know, what is it and how long is it going to be? And, and it was, let, let me just, let me just, let me give you a little background, okay? The book of Ruth, okay? The book of Ruth, focuses on a couple of different things, but number one, it focuses on a woman, a young woman who lived in a foreign country, who lived with people who were outcasts in many, many ways. Uh, they were people that worshipped false gods, gods they created with their own hands. They were pagans, they were idolaters, and this woman comes out of this particular background. And the book of Ruth is written, it's only four chapters, all it's going to be, check this out, it's only going to be, if you're thinking about leaving right now, don't leave, it's only going to be six weeks, six sessions is all it's going to be. There's only four chapters, even I can't get much more out of four chapters than six weeks. Although some of you are doubting me, this could be 16 before it's all over, but, but we're going to give it a shot to do it in six. Anyway, but the point is that the book of Ruth gives us a genealogy which basically traces traces the history of Jesus Christ back to this woman and also helps us to identify Jesus with the throne of David and the tribe of Judah. And it's an important book for that reason, if nothing else, because of the genealogy and, and, and how we, we can trace Jesus all the way back to this particular woman in this particular situation. And, and as we go through this, one of the things that's interesting to me is, is that uh, there's more to it than just that. It's more than just, you know, there are a lot of commentaries, I read different things, it's like, you know, this is an important book because it traces the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, that, that is important, but there's something else that's really important, and we're going to discuss it because this is really what the book of Ruth focuses on. It focuses on one idea, and the idea is what the Bible calls redemption. Redemption. Now, for some of us, we sit there and go, redemption, you know, it's a word that's used in Christian circles, it's a term that we've heard, you know, redemption, but, but we need to try to understand it because it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us to understand what this book is all about. Redemption. Now, 
I'm sitting there thinking, how can I illustrate this whole concept of redemption? And I recall when I was a child, now what this is going to do is that all the people who are, who are really older in here and never could relate to me because they thought I was too young, you're going to be able to identify with me now. I think I'm becoming one of you. <laughs> now, now all the younger people thought I was a pretty cool guy. I'm going to lose them right here and they're going to lose all respect for me. So it's a really risky thing, but I'm going to share it anyway. I can recall as a child sitting at a table in my grandmother's house and licking green stamps and putting them in a book. And all the old people said, Hallelujah! Yeah! He's an old guy after all. Now, some of the rest of you are thinking, now, some of you thinking, now, I don't really remember green stamps and, oh, you do so. In fact, you remember trading fur pelts for corn. So don't tell me about green stamp thing now, right? There's some out there going green stamp. How many of you, raise your hands, remember green stamps? Oh, hallelujah, this is great, because I was thinking, man, this could be a really bad illustration now if nobody races. But green stamps, you remember, S&H green stamps. Now, now, or whatever green stamps that you had. You know, those were the days, folks. Like the young people going, what? Green stamps? Now, those were the days. And, and what was interesting about those days is, you know, grocery stores gave you green stamps. Gas stations gave you green stamps. And they washed your windows, and they checked your oil, and they put air in your tires. Man, those were unbelievable days. Those were the good old days. Now you want air in your tire, there's a, there's a machine on the side, you've got to put a quarter in it. It's like, get out of the way, go. You want air. But anyway, so here's this idea of green stamps, right? Okay, well, what do you do with green stamps? Well, what you did was you put them in a book, and then you stacked several million books out somewhere in a garage or whatever, and you waited until you had enough books to take them where? to the Redemption Center. Now what happens at a Redemption Center? You haul all these things in, you know, on your old station wagon, you know, and you, in an old Ford Fairlane station wagon, 1963, and you haul those babies in there and you say, okay, I, we, want, we want that toaster. Because they just came out with two slice toasters. We want the two slice toaster, and that'll be how many? 688 books of green stamps. But it didn't matter, right? So you took them in and you redeemed them. So now I'm thinking, how can we relate in our culture today this whole concept of redemption? And the closest thing I think of is uh, if you have glass bottles that are recyclable or whatever, they have even a thing on the bottom that will say redemption value. Or if you have coupons, you go and you redeem them to whoever issues them, right? So by definition, and here, here's the important thing, definition is this. Redemption or to redeem means to purchase back or to buy back means to regain, to ransom, or to recover. Now you're sitting there thinking, now what do we have to do with green stamps? And what does a study in the Book of Ruth have to do with this whole idea of redemption and green stamps or being bought back or being ransomed or, or whatever? And it's a great question because basically what it means is is that there was something that was lost and then it was bought back. You got it? Interesting concept. You got your Bibles? Turn with me to the book of Genesis. Because I want to show you how we're going to be able to relate to what's going on in this story by understanding this whole concept of redemption. Because it really is the primary focus of what we're going to talk about. Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 15. This whole idea of something being lost and then being redeemed or bought back is a fascinating idea as it relates to us as human beings. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read these words. And the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. In the day that you eat from it you shall be lost. Says the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what they call him. Whatever the man called a living creature, that's what it was. And so here's where we are. We're in this situation where God says, Hey, basically, you know what? He has fellowship with man whom he created. They spend time together. They have a relationship together. They have an intimate relationship and understanding of one another. And God says, Hey, you know what? In order for us to enjoy our relationship together, I want to give you a freedom to choose whether you want to or not. So everything that you see here, you can have, but you can't take of this particular fruit. You can't eat this from this tree. That's it. End of story. So in, verse, in chapter 3, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit, she ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And bang, then both of them, their eyes were open, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord um, God among the trees of the garden. Bang! There's a whole change now in the relationship that we see that man has with God. And from that particular moment on, that fellowship that man had with God was, was separated, it was lost, because of their act of disobedience. Now you sit there and say, what does this have to do with us? Basically, here's what it has to do with every one of us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Through one man's act of disobedience, sin entered into the world. Now, sin, for, by definition, is another one of those words we throw up, but by definition is this. It's a violation of God's standard. God set the rules. He, we broke the rules. Adam broke the rule. God said, don't eat from that tree. He did. He broke that rule that's called sin. It falls short of what God's standard was, and therefore, we're guilty. Now, it says, through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. Now, listen to me. Every person born into this world is born with a birth defect that God calls a sin nature. That day, we were all lost. That day, we were, we were removed from the fellowship of God. On that particular day, we were separated from God. We were lost on that day. Now, what's interesting about all this is, is that, you know what, so many of us think that, you know what, but there are good people in the world. Now, they may be good by your definition, I may be good by someone else's definition, you may be good by someone's definition, but what we need to understand is, by God's definition, they may be doing good things here on earth, but from God's point of view, they are lost. They are guilty before God. You are guilty before God, I am guilty before God, and the reason that we're guilty before God is because through this one act of disobedience, we were all lost on that particular day. We need to recognize that and we need to understand it. We were all condemned on that day. There are none righteous, no, not one. 
All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to recognize and understand something that we were all lost that day. Now, we confirm the fact that we're lost by the things that we do, which confirm that that's who we are, lost people, because lost people act the way lost people should act. So we all violate what God says we shouldn't do. Now, now the issue is this. God had a plan to buy back that which was lost, which was us. And if you question whether we are condemned or not, think about this. The Bible says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, what? That he sent his only begotten Son of the world, that whoever would believe in him would, what? Would not perish, but have everlasting life. Two, two options here. You're either going to perish, or you're not going to perish. You're either dead in your sin, or you're alive in Christ. Those are the two choices. The only two kind of people that are face of the earth. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what your background is. I don't care anything. There's only two people in the world. You're either lost or you're not. You're a saint or you ain't. All right? So now, the issue is this. Verse 17 of John 3 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. Why not? Because the world has been condemned already but he sent his son into the world that we might live through him. Now you say, okay, first time I really understood that, I'm lost. I'm lost because of what happened then. The question is, what is God going to do about it? And what is his plan? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. See, you know what? The sad thing is that there is no hope for any of us. The wages of sin is death. There is none of us righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There ain't no hope if the story ended there. But thank God it doesn't. And that's where this whole concept or understanding of redemption is so critical. In Ephesians chapter 1, God lays the plan out for what he's going to do to make this situation right once again. In Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 3. We read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him, speaking of Christ, in him, listen to me, in him we have what? redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace which he lavished upon us you see that through him through Jesus we have redemption from our sins the whole concept that you know what through Christ God has ransomed those of us who are lost Jesus said he came to seek and save whom that which was lost when was it lost? The day that Adam disobeyed before God. What is God going to do about it? He says he's going to send his son into this world, speaking of Jesus Christ, that whoever would believe in him would what? Not be lost no more, but would have everlasting life. This whole concept of redemption is critical as we look to our study that we'll be doing in this little book of Ruth because it is the primary message of what God wants us to understand and to learn. This whole idea that we were lost. I was once, I was lost and now I was found. Once I was blind, and now I can see. See, and that's what God's trying to do. It's in His grace. Look at chapter 2 for a minute. Now, some of you are thinking, you know what? Well, I don't believe you. I don't believe that I'm born with this, this problem called sin nature. 
You know, I'm a good person. I do good things. Well, listen to what God says. He says, and you, speaking of believers in the church of Ephesus, he says this to them, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You see what he's saying? Hey, you were lost. And the way that we know you were lost is because the things that you were doing were in rebellion against God, and it confirmed what God says and affirms the fact that you were lost. And you were living like you were. And rightfully so, because you didn't know any other way to live, and you didn't have any strength or power to live any differently anyway. You were lost. Then he goes on and says, among them, we too. Paul, speaking of himself, says, you know what? Even me, a heavyweight big shot in this, in this church. Man, I, you know what? Even I was lost. And all of us that are here sharing with you, we were all lost. There was none of us. We all have a common denominator. We were all lost. He says, you know what? And we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as all the rest of the people that you run into. We were all in the same boat, folks. Or, more or, less, or, or worse yet, we were all cast out in the same ocean. We were ready to drown in our sins. But God, see what it says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace that you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not as a result of works that no one would boast. You see what he's saying? We were lost. God remedied the situation by sending Jesus Christ to die for us, to redeem us, to buy us back by the shedding of his blood. If we believe that, then God says he gives us the right to become children of God just to those of us who believe in his name. Now, what's interesting as we go through all of this is, is that, you know, many of us, especially men, now this is the way I think, and I'm sure many men do as well, many of us look at this whole thing as some type of, of, of a business transaction. Okay? We blew it, we made a mistake, we sinned before God, we were lost. God says, hey, I got a remedy for you, here's what it is. You know, typical guy, how can we fix it? How can I fix it? You ever see it? Your wife's crying, you, you want to fix it. How can I fix it? How can I fix it? We'll fix it. Oh, so we're looking at this going, God, okay, here it is. It's broke. Our relationship with you is broke. We don't have any fellowship anymore. You say we're condemned. We're on our way to hell. And uh, you know what? It doesn't look good. What are you going to do about it? Hey, I'm going to send my son into the world that whoever believes in him would not perish, but you'd have everlasting life. Great. Here's Jesus. Now, what am I going to do about him? Am I going to believe him or not believe him? Am I going to work my way to heaven if I think I can do that? Am I going to try it on my own approach? Or am I going to believe what God says there's no way to heaven but through Christ? Okay, I believe him. The Bible says, for those who believe him, you become a child of God, right? All right, bang, that day. Become a child of God. Okay, we're lost. He sends help. We receive his help. Now we're found. We've got a relationship with God. He saves us from the consequences of sin, which is hell, condemnation before God. We have a relationship with God. We're a child of God. To those who believe in his name, we have eternal life. We have abundant life. That's a good thing. Business deal. Sign here. Now, the problem is, with business deals, is we miss everything that goes on behind the scenes. 
we miss the fact that, you know what? What motivated God to do this? Love. Love. Why did he send a son? Because he loves us. For God so what? Loved the world that he sent his only son. He was motivated by love. Did we have a need? Absolutely. Were we lost? Absolutely. But did God love us? Absolutely. And yet, while we were sinners, God demonstrates his love to us. While we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. God loves us. We love, the Bible says, 1 John chapter 4, we love, why? Because he first loved us. God is love. None of us could love anybody or anything if it wasn't for the fact that God is love and through him we can love. The Bible tells us that God was motivated by love. The nation of Israel continually rebelled against God, and God said, you know what, what am I going to do with you people? But man, you know what, I love you so much. It just makes it so hard. Now, there isn't a parent in the world who can't relate to that when they've got a kid who's doing something that is just wrong before God, wrong before you, and they're heading in the wrong direction. You just want to give them a swift kick in the rear end, and you want to just tell them, you know, take a hike. I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go. But you know what? But it doesn't work that way. You just don't give up on them. You just keep on loving them and loving them and loving them. And people around you just go, but I don't understand why you're doing that. Because you don't understand what it means to love someone. And not to bail on them. Some of us look at God and say, how can you keep loving these people when they keep doing all these things that are wrong before you? God, kick them in the butt. <laughs> We've all been there. And God says, you don't understand. You were just as rotten as them. But I kept loving you. I kept reaching down to you. I kept reaching out to you. I love you. And so this whole, this whole book of Ruth basically centers around the fact that, you know what? God is motivated by love for people. And we're going to see this because this book is a love story. This book centers on a love story that, you know what, is just unbelievable. And if it wasn't for the fact that we're going to be focusing on people we would miss the obvious, and that is it's a picture of God's love for us. That's why he records it. That's why we have it to look at and to study. This is a picture of God's love for people. But it also is a picture of what's called a redeemer. A redeemer is one who buys back that which was lost. And basically, God recognized the fact that we needed a redeemer. We needed someone to buy us back. But only God can do that. And so what God did is he took it on himself to redeem us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The whole concept of a kinsman redeemer, as we'll find in the book of Ruth, is a picture of God's love and redemption for man, and it sets it all up so that we understand, and particularly it was set up so the Jewish people would understand that God would send a redeemer like the one that they had in their law, a kinsman redeemer, that one day God would send a redeemer into the world to buy back that which was lost. This is awesome stuff. And I hope that we never get to the point where we become so jaded and we always want to have topical studies that we recognize and understand that, man, anytime that you open this book up, there's some great stuff. And I don't know how to, you know, and I'm sorry, I don't know how to package it. I don't know how to say, we're going to do a study of the book of Ruth. I don't know how else to say that, you know, well, it's a study that focuses on God's love for people. It's a study that's going to focus on this whole idea of redemption. You know, and, I, and, I, and I, I'm sorry that I even feel like I'm apologizing. But I think that's how far gone we, we have left those roots of just being able to say, you know what, I just love studying the Bible. Because every time I pick it up, man, there's some awesome stuff in here. 
And I've never, I don't even know where the book of Ruth is. But you're going to find out, and I hope you never forget, because it's going to remind you of how much God loves you. This is some good stuff. The book of Ruth, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me. It's in the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, bang. The book of Ruth. Like I said, there's basically six acts to this love story. We'll look at it as a play almost. And we're going to be introduced in this first particular section to uh, what I call basically the prodigal family. The prodigal family. In Ruth chapter 1, we're introduced to a family that, as we'll see, is a family that, uh, well, we'll talk about them. Ruth chapter 1. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Shelon, Ephratites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. And the name of the one was, was Orpah, or, and her last name was Winfrey. And, uh, <laughs> and the name of the other, I, I'm not sure if that was true or not, but I just let it throw it out, see if you're paying attention. All right. Uh, and, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Shilon also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Now, what I want to do is just share some things with you as we go through this. You know, just a good old-fashioned Bible study. And the uh, first thing we're going to do is look at the facts behind the story. It says in Ruth 1.1 that it was in the days when the judges ruled. Now, you know what's interesting is like any love story, it's always fascinating to know what some of the history is. Now, I, now Lynn and I have had the opportunity since we've hosted many Bible studies and we've got to know a lot of different couples. It's always fun to ask people how they met or where they met or what the circumstances or the situation was behind their meeting. And it's always interesting and fascinating. In fact, one particular story stood out as I was thinking about this whole thing. And a, a friend, friends of ours, was a rookie and he was a quarter, he just came out of uh, college, he was a, um, a free agent, he was quarterback for the Rams. And he was being interviewed on TV and uh, one of the local news channels was interviewing him. And, uh, you know, he said a couple things about, you know, how he thought, well, God was in control and we'll just see what happens. And they're asking him, hey, what's it like, you know, being a free agent? You probably won't make the team. And, you know, that encouraging type of thing that the media tries to do to people, build them all up. And uh, so he's like, well, you know, God's in control and I'm not real sure, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway, watching the news this particular day was this woman and she's watching and she calls her daughter to the TV and she said, now, see, that's a, that's, that seems like a really nice young man. And uh, she said, you know, you got to try to get a hold of him. You know how moms are, right? <laughs> so anyway, she sits down and she writes a letter to Rams Park and, you know, addresses it to this guy and writes him a nice letter and encouraging him that, you know what, I, it's really good that you understand God's in control and, you know, just I want you to know I'll be praying for you and I hope everything goes the way that you want to go, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, from that letter comes a meeting. From that meeting comes a date. From that date comes a marriage. From that marriage comes four children. And 14 years later, as they say, the rest is history. Now, that's fascinating to me as we consider how God works and what he's doing behind the scenes and how he brings certain people together. And as we look at this, it's also going to be fascinating to see what God is doing behind the scenes here as well. In this first verse, we have a ton of information. 
But what I want to camp on first is this idea. It says that this took place in the days when the judges ruled. In the days when the judges ruled. You know, the book of Judges tells us a really sorry and sordid story of how, the, how you know, here were people that served God. They departed from God. Uh, they began by serving him. They turned to idols. They turned to moral corruption. Uh, they cried out to God when they were oppressed by an their enemies. And finally, they would cry out to God and say, Oh, God, I'm so we're sorry again. And God in his love would reach out and he'd bail them out and he'd send judges to bail them out of their trouble. So it's this, this cycle that takes place. You know, it's like, I love you, God. I want to serve you. I want to serve you with all my heart. Great. You start going down that road and then it's like, well, but I'm getting sidetracked and I'm doing some things that are wrong before God and you're doing the wrong thing and that's what? You pay a price because there's consequences of doing the wrong thing. And then, you know, here we go again and then we cry out, oh God, how could you let this happen to me? And he's saying, I didn't let it happen to you. You did it to yourself. If you look at what you're doing, you're doing the wrong thing. So finally we go, oh yeah, it's not your fault it's my fault that's confession I agree with you finally that what I'm doing is wrong so would you please help me and so God in his mercy again he picks us up and says okay now I hope you learned your lesson now let's move back on that road that you were going well see the nation of Israel was going through all this but the problem was they continued to go through this cycle over and over and over again to where finally God said okay well I'm gonna go ahead and raise up judges and they're gonna deliver you from the problems it's as if to say in this particular verse you know it was in the days when when Hitler ruled Germany it was in the days when Mussolini ruled Italy. It was in the days where, where um, as you look at the different, uh, Stalin ruled Russia or Idi Amin was in Uganda. I mean, it was, that, it, was that type of, it was that type of a situation. I mean, this was what was going on. These were dark days. And it was sad because it didn't have to be that way. But it's an important statement that's being made. These were dark days. You know, in, in the same sense, you know, when I consider all this, you know, think about this for a second. Here's where, here were people that were delivered by God. They were taken out of Egypt through many miracles, through the shedding of blood, through other miracles. And they were led out into a land that God had promised for them and said, if you just step out in obedience, I will lead you into the land where I want you to go. And they were delivered miraculously. You know, and I think about this and you wonder sometimes because, as Dave was mentioning, our country has come a long way down the wrong road from where this country began. It was a country that was founded upon Judeo-Christian values and principles. And what's amazing, there's a movement out there to try to have us believe that that's not true. And all you have to do is pick up your history books and read all the different quotes of our founding fathers. And many of them quote scripture on a regular basis and that this nation was founded supposedly under God. A nation that was founded under God and his principles were a nation that has gone a long way from where we started. And many even deny the existence of God or want us to believe that this isn't our history, but it is our heritage. And the nation of Israel found themselves in the same dilemma. And the only way, you know, people say, you know what, we need, we're going to need a revival in this country if we're going to survive. If you look at the battle lines that are being drawn today and you look at the abortion issue, uh, like, like was mentioned, they sanctity of life Sunday, but if you look at the abortion issue that, that has tragically divided this country and destroyed this country over the past several years, and you look at abortion, the bombings of clinics and things of that nation, nature, this, the lines are being clearly drawn. If you look at sexual immorality and what has taken place at what is now being told that we should accept and embrace alternative lifestyles and things of that nature and the homosexual movement and all the movements of promiscuity, whether it's adultery or, or fornication or whatever, and we're being told to embrace that and it's okay. We're move, we've moved a long way from where we started. And we say, but we need a revival. Let me tell you something. Here's how God brings about revival. Most Christians sit around praying that God will bring a revival. Do you realize what you're praying for? God ain't going to change people outside the church. You understand that? 
He's got to change the people that are inside his program to where they finally understand who they serve and what direction they need to go. It's not the compromise of the world because the world doesn't know a compromise. They live like people that are lost. The problem is people that aren't lost, that were found, that trusted in Christ, that no longer are living a way that's pleasing to God are the ones that God has to discipline like a son. He'll reprove us and he'll rebuke us and he'll take us out to the woodshed and he'll give us a good swift kick in the butt. That is the only thing that's going to change our country. Christians have to start living like Christians. These were the dark days. In the days when the judges ruled were days where God's people were the biggest compromisers on the face of the earth. And that's why there were dark days. We need a revival, but the revival's got to start with God's people. And when God's people go out into the world living a life that's pleasing to God, we're going to turn this world upside down. That's the problem. So we look at this and we say, man, you know what? That's the cycle that's going on here. And as we go through it, we'll realize that, you know what? These were dark days. These were very dark days. In fact, look what happened here. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because of the power of Midian was oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves. They hid in mountains and caves and strongholds, and whenever they would plant their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land. They ruined the crops all the, day, all the way to Gaza. I mean, basically, Israel would go and they'd plant their fields, and all the enemies would come up and say, hey, thank you very much, and they'd take all the crops. These people were afraid. They were hiding in cliffs. They were hiding in caves. They were hiding in the mountains. I mean, these are crummy days in the days when the judges ruled. And in a lot of ways, they're crummy days today. But you know what? The Bible says that, that there was a man from Bethlehem and Judah. Do you realize? Think about this. The only reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of what is taking place in the book of Ruth. Wow. So, I mean, that's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Bible says that Bethlehem is a, is a place that was called the house of praise and worship. The house of praise and worship. I love that. Here is the setting. Here is a family that lived in the house of praise and worship. And now, because of the second thing, a famine takes place, this family decides to move out. This family decides to move out. It says in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine that was in the land. And so their response to this famine was, hey, God, you can't meet our needs anymore. We're going to go somewhere that, that can. We're going to go from here, the house of praise and worship, we're going to go to the land of Moab, one of God's enemies who for 18 years oppressed the people of God. And as we look at this and go through it, you know, it's almost humorous in a way because in uh, Psalm 108, verse 9, it says this about Moab. Moab is my wash pot, God says. What it is, is Moab is my garbage can. That is God's impression of Moab. Now stop and think about something here. These people live in the house of praise and worship, the house of bread, praise, and worship, and they're going to leave there because of a famine, and they're going to go live in a place that God says is a garbage dump. Man, that's unbelievable to me. And what's fascinating is, is that as we look at this, we need to recognize and understand something in the Bible, there's 13 mentions, mentions of famine. And every time you'll see anything that has to do with a famine, you know why there was a famine? Because God was judging his people. God was judging his people. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. So, so if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, 
Listen to what God says. Then I'll send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I'll provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. He says, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Do you see what God's saying here? He's saying, listen, I want to warn you about something. I will bless you as you serve me and as you're obedient. But as you are disobedient and you turn from me, I will get your attention and I will send a famine to your land. I will discipline you in some way, shape, or manner, but I'm not going to let you go because I love you too much to let you do that which is destructive in your life. God knows, every parent knows how true this is. God knows none of us want our kids to do what's wrong. In fact, many times we discipline them and the first thing we'll tell them is, I love you too much to ignore what you're doing. I love you too much to let you destroy your life. I love you this much and I'm going to step in and confront it and we're going to deal with it before you go too far down the wrong road, but I want you to know what you're doing is wrong. See, you know, and, we, and you say, well, what's this have to do with me? Hey, can I just give you some suggestions today? One of the first things that happens to any Christian is this. When we believe that God is no longer meeting our needs or can't meet our needs in the way that we thought he should, our first tendency is the temptation to turn and go back to where we came from. Israel's first temptation when they ran into obstacles in the wilderness was what? I want to go back to Egypt. And God's like, you want to go where? I want to go back to Egypt. And listen to what they said. At least they fed us leeks and onions. Now listen to this. When they were crying out to God in their oppression, they said, we can't stand, we're eating leeks and onions every day. So all of a sudden, God delivers them, and the first thing they start moaning and groaning about is when they run into some obstacles and God can't meet our needs, hey, at least they were feeding us leeks and onions. Are you people stupid or what? Have you got short-term memory loss or what? What's the problem here? The temptation for God's people is always go back to where we came from. Now, let me tie this into something practical that you understand. We just did a series on finances, right? Okay, here's what will happen. Okay, God, I want to serve you and I want to apply these biblical principles of finance. All right? Okay, great. We got a deal. Okay, I'm going to start giving this year. All right? You get to the end of the month, oh, man, this thing's not working out like I thought it was going to work out. This is kind of tough. You know, I, I think we'll stop giving. You know, I wanna, I'm going to go work hard this year. Oh, man, you know what? I just don't, I'm not getting promoted. I'm not getting raises. I'm seeing people around me. They're not working as hard as me. Hey, you know what? I'm just going to get lazy again. I'm just going to fall into my old pattern and habits. Okay. You know, I can't get ahead doing the right thing. I'm just going to revert back to doing the wrong thing. You see how our, ten our, our tendency is, we're going to, oh, God, we're going to trust you until you prove that we can't trust you and you don't do what we want you to do. Then we'll go back into our own creativity and we'll handle things ourselves. God, I'm going to trust you in this. No, I'm going back to po politicking behind the scenes and manipulating as many things so I get what I want to get. I'll stab as many people in the back. I'll do whatever I have to do. Oh, God, I want to be a peacemaker. I'll use me, God, to be a peacemaker. Hey, you know what? This isn't working. Ooh, yeah, to you too, you know? <laughs> 
and you know how it is and we all go you know it's like oh you know I, I want to do oh we go through marriage series oh here's all these principles of marriage and family here's oh I want to apply this oh oh God I'm a woman and I want to be a, a quiet a quiet and, and, and sweet wife I don't want to be a nag I don't want to be like that no more I don't want to nag him I just want to be quiet, quiet and submissive and, and I'm going to win him without a word oh without a word I'm going to win him I'm going to pray I'm going to pray I'm going to pray a week goes by he ain't changing God he ain't changing. I'm praying. I'm being quiet. I'm being submissive. He ain't changing. Uh, eight days go by now. Oh, God. Oh, God. Can you hear my prayers? Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. Well, this isn't working. I tried. I tried. I tried. It's been eight days. I've been a sweet submissive wife. And look at you. You're still the big bummy you used to be. Now, here's the guy's side of it. Oh, the guy's side of it is I want to live with my wife in an understanding way. She does a couple things. You're not real sure you understand it, but God doesn't say to understand them. He says, live with them like you understand them. Okay, good. <laughs> I don't understand them. And it's like, and then we all, I don't understand what's going on here. Oh, I love this. I ran into this. Oh, I got to share this with you. This is, this is kind of like, this is what it reminds me of, reverting back. Okay, here we go. Here's sweetheart before marriage, okay? Oh, boy, she's a doll, isn't she? Oh, hey, afterwards. Whoa! Oh, oh. I, you know, and I'm, I'm, and I'm sitting there thinking, hey, hey, oh, where are you, where are you, is this you, hey, that's a good one, okay, here we go, oh, see, that's, that's the whole problem that we have, right, oh, oh God, I'm going to, oh, God, I'm going to follow you, oh, 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 this is great, oh, God, I'm going back to Egypt, oh, you see what the problem is here, we need to recognize and understand something. We just, you know, it's like, you know, I want, I'm, just, I'm going back to the way it used to be, you know. Hey, be kind, tenderhearted. Oh, I want to forgive. Oh, I'm going to forgive them. I can't forgive that. See how we are? We're nuts. <laughs> We're crazy folks. And God still loves us anyway. Wow. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome to know we're lunatics and God loves us anyway? I mean, it's just amazing to me. That's one observation. Hey, listen, folks, can I just make this as plain as possible? If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. There ain't no going back. There's nowhere to go to. Burn the bridge. If it was so great in Egypt, why'd they want to get out? If it was so great being a non-Christian, why was your life so screwed up and miserable? Why were you looking for a savior? Why were you looking for help? Why were you trying to get out of your misery? If life was so wonderful, why were you reaching out for God and embracing his forgiveness? There ain't no going back. What's the point? How about you? You think you can go back? Elimelech, let me tell you something about Elimelech. He never should have went back. No, no, bad, no, no matter how bad it was, in Bethlehem, he never should have gone back. And I'll tell you in a minute why. Here's the family. Look at their names. I love this. Elimelech. says the man's name was Elimelech. Okay. His Elimelech means, my God is king. That's what his name means. I love that. Or the king is my God. Now, in English, we call him Elimelech, right? Hey, Elimelech, how's it going? Hey, how's everything going? Hey, you have a good weekend? Hey, you know what's happening here? No. When they said his name, they said, my God is my king. Wow. Now, what I understand is this. If his God is his king, why was he living like his God wasn't his king? Christian, 
Oh, trust in Jesus. It's great. Oh, God, God will forgive you. He'll give you abundant life. Hey, listen, if your God is your king, why are you living like you're your king? That's a great question. People around you, you wonder sometimes what they think of what a Christian is by the way that we live. Hey, if your God is so great, then why are you living like he ain't? Man, that's a great question. We need to ask ourselves that. His name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. Naomi, I love it. Naomi's name means pleasant. Pleasant. She was, a, she was sunshine. Naomi. She was always smiling. She always found the good in life. I've met a couple of people like that. One, maybe. <laughs> no. We all know. I mean, how many people do you know that are like that? Hey, always find the, the good thing in life. That was Naomi, man. She was a pleasant woman. Now listen to this. Now what's interesting is her two sons, their sons were named Malon, okay? And Malon means this. Listen to this. It means unhealthy. Chilion means this. Or Kilion Chilion actually means this. Puny. <laughs> Puny. She had, they had two little runts. <laughs> Seriously. I'd like to have a name. Oh, this is our son, Unhealthy. <laughs> and this is our other son, need we say, Puny. <laughs> puny and Unhealthy. Now, what's amazing to me is, here's Puny and Unhealthy, right? And this lady is always finding the good things out of life. That says a lot about Naomi, doesn't it? She finds the pleasant things of life. Now, here's the failures of the family. We need to kind of wrap all this up. Failures of the family. Here we go. Now, we already talked about it, but I want to make it... Make it so that we understand. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and his two sons. They went, now, listen to this. Here's, here's his game plan. We're going to just go live there for a little while in the country of Moab, God, God's garbage can, who kicked our rear ends for 18 years. They've oppressed us before God. God had to deliver us from these people. But God, since you can't do your job no more here in Bethlehem, I'm going to have to go down the street and turn to your enemies to get my help. What in the world are we thinking? How many Christians you know that end up turning to non-Christians for counsel because they don't like what God has to say? Oh man, I see that happen all the time. You have a problem in your marriage. Who do you turn to? Friends that aren't Christians. The same people you've been trying to reach with God's love and have them invite Christ into their life. These are the people you turn to when you're having trouble because you already know what God has to say and what his people will say. So you go back to Egypt for advice. That's what they did. In essence, that's exactly what they did. They left Bethlehem, the house of bread and praise and worship, and they went to go to God's, to, to God's garbage can, and, the, and their game plan was this. But we're only going to stay there for a little while. Folks, don't ever believe the lie that you can visit sin and stay there for just a little while. The reason I call these people the prodigal family is it reminds me exactly of the prodigal son. What was his game plan? I think I'll go live in sin for just a little while. And you know what? One compromise turns into a lifestyle. You can't visit sin and enjoy it and stay there for a little while. I think I'll try Coke. I won't get hooked. I think I'll go back to drinking. I can't trust God. I think I'll go back to lying, cheating, and stealing. It worked for a little while. Oh, really? I think I'll go back to just pleasing myself physically because, you know, God, you're not meeting my needs through my spouse, so hey, you know, you can't do it. You can't change her. You can't change him. I just take it into my own hands and I work it out on my own. You can't visit sin for a little while. 
and I'll show you what's going to happen to them. So they went there, and we saw who the names of their kids were. Now listen to what it says. They married Moabite women. One thing led to another. They left Bethlehem. They went to Moab. They end up adopting the culture and the customs, and God warned them and said, you're going to turn to foreign gods. You're going to end up worshiping gods that you make with your own hand and think they're going to do a better job than I can do. You're going to fall away from me, and I'm going to have to discipline you because of it. They married Moabite women. They broke the Mosaic law. And look what happens. After they had lived there, and you know what's interesting? The, the, the gals that they married, the one gal, was at, her name was Athletic. This puny dude marries this athletic woman. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not sure I understand that. And then here's Ruth marries the other one, you know? They got two losers, unhealthy and puny, and these two gals married these guys. And, and you know what? And, and now, to keep in mind now, think about what we're talking about here. Here's an athletic woman marrying a puny guy. Let's see if we can figure out what happened. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. Oh! And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. They died. Elimelech, he died. The boys, I'm not surprised, puny and unhealthy, they died. They say, what in the world is going on here? Let me close with this. The future was being prepared by God. The future is being prepared by God. You know, Elimelech and his family disobeyed God when they went to Moab. And you know what God had to do? Jewish tradition says that the reason that Elimelech and his two boys died is because they disobeyed God. There are a lot of people in our country today that say, oh, you know what, we just want to believe in a God of love. A God who will endorse anything and everything that we want to do. But God is not, also, not only a God of love, which He is, but He's also a God of justice. Don't be deceived, folks. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. There was a price that they paid for compromising their faith by leaving a place where God promised to bless them, to go to their enemies for help, to eat out of a garbage can. And you know what? All three of these men died. And the funerals of the sons are what opened the door for God to get them back to Bethlehem. This, just, this journey is going to go full circle. That God used to get them back to Bethlehem. We see the faith of Ruth that tells us and shows us, you know what? Any person who cries out to God will be saved. Anyone who cries out and says, God, save me from the condemnation of my sins. Save me from the fact that I know if I die, I'm going to hell because you tell me that. God, save me. I want to believe in Jesus Christ. The book of Ruth shows us that God's program is open not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to the entire world of population, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone and everyone. Man, this is good stuff. In the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, he said to him, you know what, don't ever forget that I will make you a great nation. We need to recognize and understand that, you know what, God's program will continue on with us or without us. And Elimelech and his sons chose to disobey God, and God said, that's not a problem, I'll just take you out of my way. And now we got Ruth in the picture, and I got big plans, and my plans will be fulfilled because I am not like a man. I cannot lie. I cannot change my mind. When I told Abraham I'll make him a great nation, I made that promise to him, and I will. And you're going to see how it's fulfilled as we look through the book of Ruth. But he says this. You know what? Hey, talk about a love story here. Let me read this. A true story. Moses, Moses Mendelssohn was the grandfather of a well-known German composer. 
He was far from being handsome, along with a rather short stature. He had a grotesque hunch, hunchback. It says, one day he visited a merchant in Hamburg who had a lovely daughter named Frumjai, Frumji or something like that. Frumji. I mean, it's really hard to picture her, but, you know, Frumji. But Moses fell help, hopelessly in love with her, but Frumji was repulsed by his mishap in appearance. It says, when it came time for him to leave, Moses gathered his courage, climbed the stairs to her room, took one last opportunity to speak to her, and she was a vision of heavenly beauty. But, she, but he caught, it was great sadness in his heart because she would never look at him because of his appearance. So finally, in frustration, he said to her, hey, do you believe that, that marriages are made in heaven? And she said, without looking at him, yes, I do. Do you? And he said, oh, absolutely. Yes, I do, too. He says, you see, in heaven, at the birth of each boy, the Lord announces which girl he's going to marry. He says, when I was born, my future bride was pointed out to me. Then the Lord added, but you know what? Your wife will be a humpback. She'll be hunchbacked. He says, right then and there, I called out, oh, Lord, a, a hunchback woman would be a tragedy. Please, Lord, give me the hump and let her be beautiful. It says, then Fromjai looked into his eyes and was stirred by some deep memory. And she reached out and gave Mendelssohn her hand and later became his devoted wife. Was that awesome? See, and you know what's awesome about that is? Here, here's, what, here's what God did. He said, you're born with a grotesque hunchback. It's sin. It's, it's, it's ugly. It's putrid. God turns his face from it. But he said, but you know what? But, but I'll take that away from you. And I'll put it on my son, Jesus. And he'll take that sin from you and he'll carry it on his own shoulders as he goes to the cross. And in him doing that, and as he hangs on that cross and his blood is shed, I'm going to redeem that which was lost. For as many of you want to believe that, I'll give you the right to become a child of mine, God says. If you don't, that's your freedom. You can choose not to. But don't forget, if you choose not to, you're lost. And you'll be in hell because you chose to go there. Because I provided a remedy. He's saying, but if you just believe that and you trust me, then I'll take that sin from you and he will be sin for you. And you know what? And the reason I want to do it is because you don't deserve it. You are ugly. You are grotesque. You, 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 you turn my stomach. You, you do things that are just putrid in my sight. But you know what? I'm going to do it because I'm motivated by my love for you. I love you, he says. Folks, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, then I don't think you understand and appreciate how lost you really are. God says he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And all you need to do today in the quietness of your own heart is say, God, forgive me from a sinner. I never realized how lost I was. In fact, the fact that I didn't even know I was lost was how lost I was. And I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to die for me. Today, I want to believe, him, believe that. I want to receive him. I want him to come into my life so that I can say the same as the Apostle Paul. I've been crucified with Christ and it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, on this earth, I live by my faith in the Son of God. Who what? Who loved me and he gave himself for me. Folks, that's all there is. That's what redemption's all about. Buying back that which was lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story of Ruth. A woman who comes from a background like many of us and like all of us a lost background, a pagan people worshiping idols in so many different ways, whether it was the idol of money or the idol of sports or the idol of, of even our own good works, whatever the idol was, God, we come from that background. And we just thank you that you want to buy back that what was lost, which was us. And that all we need to do is believe you and trust in Christ. God, I just pray for those who are here that have never put their faith and trust in him, or those who listen by tape, that they would do that today. 
And we just thank you and we praise you for the fact that you tell us if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. And all things pass away. All things become new. And there ain't no going back. And we just thank you for what you have ahead of, of, of us. And we just praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Next week. Next week, ladies. Next week. How to get along with your mother-in-law.